Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. And welcome to the first episode of What's the Crack? A brand new episode looking at drug stories in the UK media and discussing the evidence behind it. I'm Elle Wadsworth and here with me I have Rob Calder and Lindsay Hines. Hello. Hi. And we're all researchers here at the National Addiction Centre in London. For more information about what we do and what we're researching, please check out our mini biographies found on Acast and iTunes. So, today's theme is Dry January. Are you involved in Dry January? Um, I've got strong intentions. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I just—it's one. I don't think dry January is well placed. I mean, it's a bad place to start on this podcast, but I just think um, January is such a bleak and dour month that uh, you just need all the help you can get. Adding difficulties to it um, uh, for me doesn't work. I think I'll probably go to dry February. Even though it doesn't doesn't rhyme so well with the words, but um, yeah, that's true. I I don't know. I once gave up drinking for three months, oh, okay. uh, but in summer. So I kind of, this for me kind of chimes with Rob's point that, you know, it's dark yeah. outside, it's a cold time, you know, it's just it's just not the time for me to be giving up drinking. Okay. So, <laughs> But in the summer months when everyone's happy anyway. Yeah, in the summer months, you know, it's happy. Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> you're having a great time. Yeah. What about you, Elle? Yeah. Yeah. I did it last year. And I do all, remember. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I did do it last year, but um, no... I did not... I'm not going to do it again. I remember it was really inconvenient when you gave up, when you gave up drinking last year. <laughs> well, it was very inconvenient, yeah. I did, I did not enjoy it, not for the not giving up alcohol, but, you know. I just... think that, like, part of the thing of Dry January is how people around you react to it. Yeah. Like, when you... Even if you just, uh, you know, casually in the pub, people mm. take it really badly when you're like, oh, I'm not drinking. It makes them question their own drinking and whether, you know, what they should be doing. And then everyone's uncomfortable and they don't invite you places. Yeah, and oh, that's we'll how I felt about you. <laughs> oh, did you not invite me places? <laughs> that's nice to know. <laughs> okay, well, I am moving on with the podcast. Um, I'll begin by explaining what Dry January actually is before we look into the evidence on a societal level and the individual level arising. Um, we will also then follow with an historical piece that Rob mm-hmm. will introduce and then go on to a thought piece that I will introduce. Um, so to begin, what actually is Dry January? Uh, it's when people who have indulged in too much booze in December will decide to take a month off drinking in January. So a whole 31 days, is that right? 31 days, yes. Mm. Um, 31 days. Um, it was initiated by a woman called Emily Robinson yeah. um, who started to work for Alcohol Concern and gave up drinking in 2011, in okay. January. Um, and then it was dry January as a... Um, concept was then launched in May 2012. Oh, was it launched by Alcohol Concern? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Alcohol Concern's website tells me that. Okay. So, you know, 
who knows, it could be launched by loads of people around the world. But in yeah. the UK, Alcon Concern. Yeah. And then obviously uh, different um, spans of that's come off. So we've got Stoptober, we've got... Uh, Stoptober's for smoking, isn't for it? For smoking, yeah. So there's various different um, things throughout the year to stop for one month of some sort of vice, yeah. uh, which is generally either alcohol or um, tobacco. Um, but yeah, it's been great. Since then, you can either raise money for charity to stop drinking, but generally just people... People just do it and see if they can do it for a month. But um, but yeah, let's begin with Rob, who's looking at effects on the individual. Um, okay, so yeah, so I'm going to try and look at this in comparison to Stoptober. Stoptober is a really good um, example. So Stoptober is for people quitting cigarettes. Dry January is for people um, stopping using alcohol for a month, and they're targeted at, at two different people. And it's that comparison that I think's um, quite interesting. So. So Stoptober is about people trying to quit cigarettes. So it's targeted at people who are addicted to nicotine, Mm -hmm. who use cigarettes the whole time. And uh, the reason it's for a month is because um, if people have quit for a month, people who successfully quit for one month uh, cigarettes, their chance of staying stopped is, is, um, is much greater, which basically we start talking about relapse curves so with with tobacco there's a really steep relapse curve which basically means most people who are going to relapse are going to relapse in the first uh, seven to eight days right okay so if you can quit for a month the chances of you then continuing six months to a year and quitting tobacco are are improved yeah so that's that's why they go for a month because they want people to quit for good yeah and the and they've got more of a chance of quitting for good if they've succeeded in that month. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the benefits from quitting uh, tobacco come from long-term quitting. You need to quit tobacco forever in order for um, a lot of the effects to take place. So by comparison with Stoptober, which is about encouraging people to quit to, for good, we have uh, Dry January, which is going on at the moment, which is about recreational drinkers um, stopping use for um, a small amount of time. Um, and is it uh, actually advertised for recreational drinkers? Yeah, I mean, is that is that forced or is it just for <clears throat> those who drink? I think it's just for people who drink, isn't it? Like dry right. January, um, anyone can take part <clears throat> in it. Right, okay. um, anyone can do it. Whereas, so and they I have think health guidelines for heavy drinkers. Don't yeah, they? if I mean, if you're alcohol dependent, then mm. um, just stopping on the first of January could be physically quite quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for people addicted to alcohol. It's it's not advised to kind of just take mm. just take a month off to recover and then and then go back on it. That's actually quite harmful. That I guess for like mo- it's aimed at just getting people to reduce or stop their alcohol mm. use for a month. Yeah, people who aren't problematic. And yeah. I know that when people have um, so uh, when I was so some of the research that I looked at, which was um, conducted by Liverpool John Moores University and like evaluating dry January they found that the majority of people who were taking part they measured them using the audit which is the mm. World Health Organization measure of problematic drinking and the most of the people taking part weren't uh, problematic drinkers right, okay. they were just people who were kind of moderate drinkers and who were then giving up for a month so I suppose that's the market yeah. that's mostly that's getting yeah. mostly capturing right. yeah okay. so you've got you've got that difference between Stoptober Stoptober which is about people addicted to nicotine trying to give up and uh, dry January more focused on recreational drinkers to reduce the harm mm-hmm. of their drinking. Um, um, but actually, there's, there's a whole bundle of different outcomes that people are, are looking at here. So one of the ideas of Dry January is that during that month of, of quitting, uh, uh, a number of things can happen that are healthy. They, they talk about kind of 
experiencing reduced depression, um, about improved sleep, about better skin, um, about experiencing going out socially without using alcohol, your kind of anxiolytic of uh, mm. choice. Um, and there's also things like the liver can start repairing itself. So the liver being an amazing audi- or audience. <laughs> it is a great audience. Is it the target audience for this podcast? Tweet it. <laughs> if you're a liver. <laughs> um, so the liver being an amazing organ can start um, healing itself, but can, it can only do so if you have a break from alcohol, which is one of the reasons that guidelines recommend two to three, two or three days consecutively every week uh, as a break from alcohol so your liver can repair itself. Um, it's increased the immune system. And relating back to what you said at the beginning of the podcast was that there was um, drink refusal self-efficacy, which I think is really interesting. So what over, is that? <laughs> so over, over the period of a month, um, you get practice in saying, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm going to have a lime soda, I'm going to have a, a Coca-Cola, whilst all your, your friends or your colleagues or your peers or your work colleagues or whatever are having alcohol. And because you get to practice it, you feel much more comfortable doing it. Okay. The idea being that after January, um, you're able to... People who return to drinking do so at um, a more considered level because they're able to then refuse alcohol more assertively. They're able to think... So they put the practice in by saying, no, I actually don't want to drink. Yeah. Yeah. And But this relies on your friends still inviting you out during dry January. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And not just cutting you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, and it's, I think it's important to... You can to practice say, at home, surely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would like a lime soda. <laughs> you say to your fridge. Well, <laughs> <laughs> While opening it up. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it is... I, I, think it, I think that's really... I think that's really interesting because when we... Uh, when I used to work in drug treatment agency, agencies, we'd always recommend people, you know, actually, assertive refusal, um, I don't want to go to this place, I, I don't want another drink, or, you know, I've quit mm. drinking... Whatever it was, assertive refusal, we'd recommend, you know, look in the mirror and run through the words because you don't want to be using them for the first time when you actually mean them, you know, practice it. Um, and you, had, you quite often had this weird situation where people were like, I would do anything to change my life, but I'm not going to look at myself in the mirror and practice saying no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's a really simple thing to do, but, but people do feel uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, OK. So um, the two things that I re- uh, wanted just to pick up, which we haven't touched on, which were... Um, the evidence suggests the evidence suggests that people who uh, partake in dry January return to drinking with reduced harm or with mm-hmm. reduced levels of drinking. That the um, the effects of dry January persist beyond that particular month. That they gain right. health benefits; those health benefits extend, and people tend to drink more um, uh, at follow up. Um, but these are people who have succeeded in quitting for the month. Right. So people who haven't succeeded in quitting for the month who have fallen over after a week and, and started drinking again are less likely to see those longer benefits. Right. The other part of it was there were discussion about um, the rebound effect. So one of the worries or one of the criticisms of dry January is like people quit um, alcohol for a month, mm. but do they then on the 1st of February go out and get absolutely hammered and kind of take it up with more zeal than they mm. did in uh, December? And again, there's very, there's very little evidence for that, um, so people, generally speaking, don't. And yeah. what rebound effect was found, what small rebound effect was found, was amongst people who had failed in dry January. So it's a bit of a weird thing. Mm. Right, OK. Like, No, I can relate to that. You're like, well, I've already failed. I've had one drink. I might as well might now as well just go and have, uh, yeah, eight pints. Yeah. And it, it can reinforce your, um, your perception as being unable to control your drinking, I suppose. Yeah. 
but in a very very small minority I think mm. it's worth it's worth adding for most people this is a good thing yeah yeah okay I think what I'd be interested in and I haven't got any research on it because there is very little research on dry January mm. I guess because it's only happening for once a year mm. it's difficult to, since 2012 since 2012 yeah and research is a slow moving process mm. um but I'd be interested to know uh what so if people who've done dry January when they come back from February like what their tolerance is like and yeah. whether we see an increase in kind of unintentional harms amongst people who've had mm. dry January they're used to being able to drink like you know a bottle of wine in a go some people mm. and not feel much effect of it and then they come back after the month off and suddenly their tolerance is gone and um mm. yeah they're suddenly much less able yeah. to cope with the alcohol that they were used to so harms I'd be interested in that yeah. harms to self and how about the harms to society Lindsay how about those harms to society mm. so I guess the thing is we can't really talk about harms to society without separating it from the individual well by okay. separating it from the individual so it's all linked because dry January isn't going to be like increasing carbon emissions is it not that i've thought of <laughs> fact check yeah, fact check. yeah <laughs> next exactly week. Um, well more people are sober enough to drive oh my god you're right this could be an environmental catastrophe that's true more, what more people driving yeah unless people get in ubers yeah mm. true okay so there's a let's, so, let's okay. not derail this so when, when we think about social influences we can think about the effect on uber mm. we can think about the effect on carbon emissions but um so some research has been done um by liverpool john moore their center for public health yeah um and that was looking at the um the influence of dry january on um hospital admissions and so what we're seeing there in terms of um, whether there's fewer, um, you know, like whether there's fewer ambulance calls out, call outs, or whether we're seeing people actually harming themselves less, yeah. um, compared to other months when yeah. people aren't doing dry January. Um, and what they found out found that in the year when they assessed it, which was uh, I think 2014 to 2015, right? Um, unless that's just when you did your masters. <laughs> oh, okay. You're thinking about my masters? Yeah, though, sorry. Lindsay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this was probably 2014 to 2015. No, let's focus back on me. Yeah. Um, yeah, they found that um, whilst emergency uh, admissions, hospital emergency admissions were lower um, than in previous, okay. the previous January, um, they were also lower in December and they were also lower in March. So there was a general trend that year for emergency emissions to be lower. Okay. And they found that compared to like the change between December to January um, in you know people hurting themselves the previous year, there was no change in that right, um, okay. this year. So it didn't seem like dry January was okay. actually having that much of an effect on the burden and the strain on the NHS that we mm. get from alcohol-related injuries, which... I guess it's surprising. Like, you might expect that if so yeah. many people are giving now up drinking sober. for a month, yeah, and are now sober, that we'd see much less strain. Well, like I was saying earlier, most of the people mm. who take part in Dry January aren't people who are problematically or risky drinkers. They're people who, you know, may be drinking at a kind of more moderate level and then, yeah. you know, just kind of cut down for this one month. So, yeah, they were saying that it's probably that the people who are taking part aren't engaged in these risky behaviours, aren't the people who are putting... A, uh, you know, a strain on the NHS yeah. through alcohol-related injuries anyway. So in that sense, I guess dry January isn't really helping society because mm. it's not, uh, you know, it's not really reaching the people. The right audience. Yeah, the people, well, not the right audience, mm. but, you know, it's not reaching the portions of the population that yeah. uh, okay. alcohol is causing a harm to society through. But this is just one piece of research done in the northwest of England. Yeah. So it could be that we see different things in different areas. We would there be an argument to say that um, the harms from 
because I, I, I guess uh, dry January could be seen as a nudge for that population. Mm. So it's not it's not uh, a disruptive intervention. What would be a nudge, Rob? <laughs> um, the opposite of a disruptive intervention. <laughs> um, so, um, so a bit like adding a bit of tax to um, the price of alcohol mm-hmm. um, affects the entire population in a very small way. Right. Um, whereas uh, kind of disruptive innovations um, tend to disrupt the behaviour of small levels of population right, okay. in quite a severe way. Mm-hmm. So where most people won't feel the difference of, say, 10 pence on the price of a pint, it would price a certain bracket of people down from three pints to two. Right. And it's that kind of thing that economically or um, public health campaigns, information campaigns might nudge people's behaviour. And if you can get a slight difference in a massive population, um, then I guess long term you might see some some beneficial consequences. And I was wondering whether dry January might be the kind of thing that Mm. if you have a whole population reducing their drinking slightly, that it might be seen. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. In, say, um, uh, alcohol-related diseases in, say, 10, 20 years' time, or be mm. part of a trend towards... Um, safer alcohol yeah I mean certainly in the UK it's not going to hurt us to reduce our drinking you Mm -hmm. know as a country everyone's it's you know it's quite documented that we've got a a lot of problematic drinking Mm. quite a different approach to drinking to other countries where in the UK we have a lot more binge drinking Mm. than um countries suggest that it is like I don't know it doesn't that reinforce the binge drinking if it is stopping for a bit and then drinking for a bit mm, and then interesting. stopping for a bit mm. maybe mm. but then it depends if people if this like like Rob was saying teaches people strategies to right. okay. reduce their drinking or get them used to drinking at a lower level mm. or that you know they come back to drinking and they're like actually maybe I don't need as much to, to drink as I did before you know to reach the same effect mm. which, because of the tolerance to alcohol dropping then yeah then it could be in that way mm. having a more long term effect I mean it's not like in this um, research mm-hmm. as I was saying hospital admission rates had dropped between those two years obviously a billion factors which yeah. could explain that yeah. but it could be that dry January <laughs> over time is slowly reducing hospital admissions yeah. year by year Catch or on. should we yeah. take dry January back to its roots um, and go for an historical piece Rob um, well, I was, Rob's I just got more to say I've got more to say come on Rob what have you got to say well I was, I was just going to which does lead us into it because um, I think it's interesting to look at the objectives. So when you're looking at societal objectives, you're looking at things like strain on the NHS, you're looking at things like the cost to society of people's illnesses, of people's mm. drinking behaviour. Um, and when you're doing research, you necessarily have to determine what these objectives are. Um, but for individuals who are either engaging in dry January, thinking of engaging in dry January, or th- just thinking of giving something up for a, a specific piece of time, um, it's important that you, you match your behaviour to your own objectives. And for, so for people whose objectives might be to get better skin, mm. then this could be an incredibly successful intervention. It could be yeah. a, a su- successful thing to do. Or people who want um, better sleep or people who are suffering from low levels of depression. Um, 
and I think inevitably when you when you conduct research or do things on a national scale, you have to kind of amalgamate um, objectives. But but for individuals, they can be a little bit more specific. Mm. So you're saying for some people, it might just be cut down your drinking for January. Dry yeah. two weeks. Yeah, dry two. Well, if people's objective dry is mid-week. to save enough money to go on holiday next year, then once they've saved that money, that's that's great. That's mm. a that's a wonderful thing for them, and that's a really positive outcome. So not everything has to be all or nothing, like drinking or abstinence. Those are yeah. the only two options. Is there any place in our society where the idea of abstinence being a positive might have come from? Like, is there a historical precedent is there, for that? Is there, I've got Ooh. one more. Before we, <laughs> oh, Rob. Oh, Rob, come on. We can't come Rob, up with that many <laughs> Historical. <laughs> so, society. Um, we're, if we're looking at the societal view, what oh, we have here... It's not, though. This is, this is moved on to the historical piece. Oh, I'm going to speak about history. Okay. So, society at the moment is... Um, with Dry January, you have... Um, uh, a large range of people interested in public health encouraging temporary abstinence. And so this got me thinking about uh, the kind of religious over- overtones of this and uh, so with Lent, obviously, people are encouraged to um, give up um, things. Eggs? Chocolate? I gave up going to Oceania I... and it was really good for me and I stuck with it forever. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been back to Oceania? Never, since wow. I gave it up for Lent. Other clubs are available. Yeah, persis- <laughs> persisting uh, positive effects. Exactly, see? <laughs> so uh, this thing casts, this, uh, casts your mind back to the temperance movement of the eighteen, um, the temperance movements of the eighteen hundreds, where you had uh, lots of people interested in public health or politicians or um, uh, business people interested in addressing the problems of uh, people being too drunk. So some of this was from benevolence of we want people to suffer less harms, you know, sort of the whole gin lane era. Um, and part of this was because people weren't turning up to work, they weren't uh, productive. So there was kind of mixed motivations for these for these drives towards temperance. Temperance was, uh, we have a movement, um, please join it and uh, be abstinent from, from vice, from alcohol um, particularly. So this was all across Europe. Okay. Um, and the... Um, the interesting part about which countries had strong temperance movements and which countries didn't have strong temperance movements was that um, the countries with strong temperance movements uh, were those more likely to drink hard liquor, so more likely to drink distilled liquor like gin, So are you saying strong temperance movements as the ones that um, more people got involved with? Um, yeah, so or they were, was forced upon. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they, okay. they were, they were yeah. bigger drives for abstinence. Okay. Um, they were more engaged in policy and politics, mm-hmm. uh, more infiltrated the political world and, and the laws of the, yeah. those countries. Okay. Um, so they were more likely to be countries that drank hard liquor, like the UK drinking gin. Yeah. And they were more likely to be countries um, that had a Protestant religion as strong in their country. Right. Which which makes makes some kind of sense, and it still brings us back to modern times where we're still trying to work out what the difference between the Mediterranean drinking culture is yeah. and the difference, well, certainly in the UK, we're looking at the difference with the UK drinking culture and Mediterranean drinking culture. And there's always that kind of, we wish we could have a Mediterranean drinking culture. In moderation, have a glass of wine with my dinner. Yeah, with all the reduced... With the sunset. <laughs> with all the reduced harms that that, that supposedly, um, or seems to seems to bring. I think there's a there's a, for one there's a nice comparison between um, you know the 1800s mm. and groups of people trying to encourage people to be abstinent for the benefit of society and today we have groups of people interested people uh, trying to encourage people to be abstinent for the 
for the sake of society and for very good reason and with very good support and with very good effects. But there is that kind of uh, that mirroring. And, and secondly, just that the origins of those drinking cultures and attempts to address those drinking cultures um, go back uh, quite a long way. It would be interesting to see if those um, countries that followed a stronger temperance movements are the ones that actually embark on Dry January. There's mm. more Dry January around Europe, is there? Is there? Do we know? We don't know, we don't unfortunately. Know. We haven't been able to internet search it. Oh, fact check for next week, shall we? Yeah, it's quite difficult to find that stuff out. <clears throat> so, so that's part of the uh, history of the temperance movement, um, which informs uh, drives to abstinence, which then brings up to the modern day Dry January, Stoptober, which uh, apart, you know have a long history um, in in drives towards abstinence and drives in public health um, mass campaigns to to support people in uh, reducing alcohol, cigarettes, and other vices. Great, thank you, Rob. Wonderful, wonderful historical piece. No worries, thank you. So while we're all um, thinking about things, we're going to move on to our thought piece, Mm -hmm. which is, does temporary abstinence, which is what dry January and September is... Is um, is temperance a portmanteau of temporary abstinence? Ooh! Is it it like the first... Right, no, it's not, because they didn't want temporary abstinence, did they? They wanted wanted continual abstinence. I I imagine temperance comes from, like... They've been livid with how that's been... um... Or anti-blend, because they've, like, already had the shortened version. Oh, we've just separated it. Is anti-blend a thing? Nope. (laughs) I think, so the port manteau is, like, when you put two words together. Yeah, so manteau port. Manteau port. Yeah, the manteau ported it. Sorry, uh, I've derailed your (laughs) thing. That's a really good Um, point, but... it's, It's... yeah. It's funny how things echo down history, isn't it? Mm. 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 <laughs> so the question being, does temporary abstinence appeal to our health-conscious millennials? Oh, the millennials. The millennials. So um, I was looking at research from the National um, Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in the US, and they were like classifying people according to their habits, lifestyles, and opinions to find the cross-section of who binge drinks in society. And um, surprisingly, maybe, it was the millennials, like the, um, yeah, the millennials. I don't know the age bracket. But it was also found that those were the, also the most health-conscious and the ones that would go to the gym more and the more that, uh, that would be looking at their food and trying their healthier choices, veganism. clean eating. Exactly, clean eating, going to the gym during the week and then, you know, binge drinking during the weekends. So is it, what I think I touched on earlier, is it promoting that all-or-nothing approach of I'm going to drink so much in December because I'm not going to drink loads in January and then I'm going to kickstart my 2017 in a really healthy way. Have a detox. Have a detox and then start again and then party hard in Feb. So you're saying, you're suggesting that this might appeal to younger people who don't live a life of moderation mm. but want to have both excess, yeah. um, want to be able to have excess but also health. And so yeah. they're combining, um, you know, excessive um, drinking with then... Uh, that kind of abstinent but period. Aren't they the same generation who are reducing their? You tell me, Rob. They're drinking. I thought <laughs> this is your generation. Aren't I the same generation who is? No, I, th- I thought that um, uh, the millennials, as I as I, as I knew them to be, um, were notable for drinking less, for having less of a drinking culture, mm-hmm. consuming fewer drugs than uh, people who grew up in, say, the nineties. Um, the 80s and 90s. I thought there was a downward trend in consumption. Oh, that's interesting. So the data on the trend in consumption 
Okay, so speculation, but what is it based on? Is it based on the total amount of alcohol that you drink a month, or will it be on, like, days per month when you're drinking or using Mm. drugs? And if it is, then maybe that would explain why we're capturing a downward trend in young people, because they're just, like, you know, much fewer days of use, but much more higher use when Mm. it happens. I mean, I don't have the data in front of me that these figures are based well, on so I can't I guess that, that's but. why you use things like the audit C which kind of combines some What's of the these audit C again? Uh, it's um, it's a measurement tool which everyone who's gone to their doctor should have gone through so it asks right. you a load of things like yeah. have you ever have you ever missed work because of alcohol mm, as a family member being worried about your alcohol use yeah, yeah. how many drink how many units which so again they do not explain units well but I mean just to like shoot down the idea that this is really appealing to millennials Mm. um so the age figures on who's taking part in dry january that uh liverpool john moore university Mm. found were that only 26 percent of those taking part were age 18 to 25 and the majority were the older the people who are 35 and older yeah were those taking part in dry january i had a um a uh research paper from um in, that was taken part in Australia that they did something called it was called hello sunday morning which was like dry january but it was for 3 months instead of a month and they encouraged people to be to, to be involved in hello sunday morning you had to blog about your experience to make a community and it it was so there was 154 men, members that actually completed a minimum of um, 3 months abstinence which made two, 2008 over 2800 blog posts but again it was like 71% were female and 88% of those were over 30 so again going with the mm. fact that this abstinence thing and the mean age was 41 so it is again maybe appealing to older people and not millennials at all. Yeah, but and I think that's that's uh, it's one of the I guess criticisms of uh, population-wide uh, policy interventions is that is that they are very broad mm. tools, and I think particularly things that rely on information sharing like dry, uh, stopped over dry January, <laughs> like the pre-Christmas anti-drink drive things. They re- they rely on people absorbing information and changing their behaviour um, accordingly, and they're very very blunt tools. Um, they're not defined interventions for problematic uh, groups, and I think they have to be differently. But that doesn't mm. mean that these broad, blunt, nudge tools um, aren't effective as part of a programme of, of changing people's behaviour. Yeah, but I suppose, is Dry January, is it a tool? Is that what it was set up for to... I guess that when we're talking about Dry January throughout all of this, what we haven't touched on is actually what is the objective of Dry January? Why did um, alcohol concern introduce it Mm. did they have an objective was it to get um long-term drinkers to cut down drinking was it to get people who are problematically drinking to cut down was it just to raise awareness for people of their drinking and just to get people talking about alcohol Alcohol use because if they were if it was just to get people talking about their alcohol use we've walked right into that (laughs) (laughs) we've walked into a trap so yeah but so i don't so yeah i think we it's not really an intervention, is it? It's just something which alcohol concern no. have come up with and put out there. Yeah, no, I, th- I, th- no, I think it, I think it's uh, I think it works as an intervention. It's just a very, very, very complex intervention that works in a massive range of different ways. Um, because it, it's something national, it relies on information and it affects people's behaviour. So, I think it I think it does count as an intervention, but it's a, it's a very, very complex one. Okay, so I guess as a researcher, which we obviously all are, if Thinking about dry January as an intervention, I'm just we like we need a control group. Yeah, it hasn't been it hasn't been tested. We, we so I think that why we're struggling to talk about the effects of dry January does it reach this population? Does it tie mm. in with what yeah, yeah. would con, with yeah. millennials? Is because 
it's just something that's put out there. We haven't got any... It's not got a control group. It's not something which has had research applied to it, and it's not something that's being measured, and it's not something where the outcomes are clear, yeah. which mm. is um, it, which limits what we can say about the effectiveness yeah. of it and its effect on society and, and who it appeals to. And even, even if you get positive outcomes from, from people having quit in that month, uh, what is it to say that they haven't just arranged... These could be people who would naturally have quit in the year anyway, but because there's dry January, it's like, right, that's when I'm going to do mm, it. Yeah. So these are people who are motivated to quit. Many people, already lots and motivated. lots of people are already motivated yeah. to quit. They just need to set a, a date. date and to kind of sort their things out. And, mm. and if dry January just focuses everyone's quit attempt into the same month, is it actually being effective at, at, at changing behaviour? Is it intervening or is it just... Um, is it something else? This is a, that was a good thought piece. Oh. So, yeah, so what, what we're saying yeah. is... Uh, it's complex. Fund us. <laughs> We've it's got very complex idea. and we've, we've just failed now. Yeah. Well, I think that is a perfect uh, thought piece to end on, the yeah. fact that we just don't know, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not our fault that we don't know. It's not gonna, our fault, no, it's definitely not our fault. We're going to end a lot of podcasts with that. Yeah, exactly. We just don't know. <laughs> um, wonderful. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, that's been our first episode of What's the Crack?, if you are interested, please subscribe on Acast or iTunes. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, Rob is at CalderRob. Lindsay is at Lindsay A. Hines. And I am at Elshawad. Okay, guys, thanks for listening. And we hope to see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.